Good morning again, and welcome to the Lord's house. This is God's house. You are God's child, whether you know it or not, so welcome home. I'm Steve Hauer. I'm privileged to teach today, especially this lesson. This is such an important lesson. It uh, is called the Marked Series because in this chapter, 2 Peter chapter 1, the Lord says our faith should be marked by certain qualities. Now, you know, I'm an old guy in, in terms of uh, church leadership. I've been around a while. And uh, a lot of times people will ask my advice about their churches and what to do with them. And, and uh, churches are struggling all over the country. And people are also struggling uh, in making their faith effective in their own relationships. And a lot of pastors will say, results are not my deal. You know, God brings the result. All I am to do is be faithful. You know, just preach the word and sacraments. If the church grows, that's on God. If it doesn't grow, that's on God too. And I've heard people say that too. You know, well, I told them. As though uh, just telling somebody, you know, what's wrong or what's right with their life is going to win their heart for Christ. This chapter flies in the face of all that. It says you have responsibility not only to share, but to share in a certain way, in a certain manner. And it's just so powerful. It says, lest you be ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many ineffective and unproductive Christians. And there are way too many ineffective and unproductive congregations. I thank God that we're seeing the results of your faithfulness. We're seeing the results of your marked faith and the influence you're having in your relationships here all the time in our new member classes, in our getting started classes, and in the growth of this congregation. But this is something that we all need to pay attention to. Let me just uh, review what the scripture has to say on this whole subject, and then we're going to get to the two qualities today that should mark the life of every Christian, and that's mutual affection and love. So let's do a bit of a review from Second Peter chapter 1. Notice we're beginning in verse 5. But verses 1 through 4 are also significant. It says, because God has done all of this for you, because he gave you Jesus Christ, because he has blessed you with certain gifts, because his grace continues to produce love in your life, because of all that he has done and all that you have received, not insignificant, the motive, for this very reason, make every effort, because of what God has done, to add to your faith certain qualities, goodness, And to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. See, it does matter, you know, how you bring the faith to bear in life. And to perseverance, godliness. And then today, and to godliness, mutual affection, which actually uh, in the Greek is, is the word of the city, Philadelphia. That's actually the literal word, which is a a form of um, encouragement and mutual affection and love, which is agape, which is different. These two words are different. We're going to get to the distinction of these two words in a moment. And then he says about this entire list that we've been talking about throughout this series, if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, not just have them, but continue to pay attention to them, continue to grow them in your life, they will keep you from what none of us want to be, ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. 
Now today we're focusing on that mutual affection, Philadelphia, that brotherly encouragement or brotherly love, and it actually, uh, uh, philia is that form of love, and uh, adelphos is the term for man, you know, love of your fellow man, the encouragement of your fellow man, and agape, so this mutual affection and love. Now the world even understands the power of mutual affection and love. Things are achieved apart from faith when people know that you care, when you invest in people and not just force through power uh, the, uh, the increase of the bottom line. In fact, there are all kinds of books out there. These are just two of the most recent that speak about how the values of God also have an impact in achieving other things in life. These are two books, The Power of Two by Joseph Schenck and The Power of Relationship by Rianne Eisler. I, I love that both of them have the word power in their life because they keep people from being ineffective and unproductive. This is what the, uh, the uh, uh, book fly on the jacket had to say about these two books. With Shank, it says, weaving the lives of scores of creative duos. It, it's a book about uh, cooperation and, and uh, stimulation that occurs between people who were known to each other and who, who stimulated creativity in their life because of their mutual affection. John Lennon and Paul McCartney, Marie and Pierre Curie, scientists, uh, Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak. Uh, Shank identifies the core qualities of that dizzying experience that we call chemistry. So he's, he's uncovering and, and trying to figure out how we can use this thing that God calls mutual affection, you know, to produce creativity. He goes on to speak about others, Wilbur and Orville Wright, C.S. Lewis and J.R. Tolkien, even Magic Johnson, Larry Bird, Nicholas and Palmer. In almost every field of endeavor, there is either a creative foil or a cooperative person who has made, you know, maybe one person or both of them great in the eyes of the world because of this idea of mutual affection. Uh, Eisler has this to say, or at least they say this about Eisler's book. Her book is filled with powerful examples and extensive research that shows how a simple shift in perspective, you know, towards this relationship, towards acceptance of encouragement and provision of encouragement will break you free of domination shackles, you know, just trying to force your way and, and trying to, with power, accomplish results. And you'll discover the power and the joy, not just the accomplishment, but also the joy of partnership in every relationship. Now, I say that books like this, and, and there are many of them out there, this is just a couple of examples, books like this are, are kind of late to the party. In fact, there's an old German statement that says, zu schnell alt, zu spät klug which uh, basically means, you know, too soon old, too late smart. You know, some people are just studying, just beginning to understand something that God's been saying for ages. In Genesis chapter 2, already, you know, in the, in the creation of the very first relationship, you know, God said it's not good for man to be alone. He had to help Adam realize that you're made for relationships. And when he was feeling his loneliness, when he was feeling that there was nothing in all creation made especially for him, then God met his need by providing a woman. This idea that we are meant to work together, we are meant for mutual affection. In Ecclesiastes 4, maybe the most famous of all the teachings on this subject, Solomon, the wisest man in all the world, uh, said, two are better than one because they get a good return for their labor. In fact, 
I believe that they get a good return more than just the addition of equal labor. It's a multiplying effect we're going to see in a moment. If either of them falls down, the other can help them up. But pity the one who has no one to help him up when he falls. Also, if two lie down, they stay warm together. But how can one stay warm alone? You know, we're meant for that kind of warmth, that relational warmth, that, that hug, you know, that encouragement that we all need in life. And without it, it can be a pretty lonely and cold existence. Though one may be overpowered, two can muster a defense. And a cord of three is not quickly broken. And then this psalm, there's an entire psalm of David in the scripture that speaks about the value and the importance of unity. In fact, what destroys most churches are not attacks from outside. What destroys most churches and most marriages, most families, is discord within, not attacks from without. And uh, Paul does this very well in, first, in, in Psalm 133. He says, where unity is, God's blessing dwells. He says it's, it's like the rain, it's like the snow, it's like the dew that falls on Mount Hermon. It is life-giving. So when the scripture says, add to your life mutual affection, he's saying if you don't have that, if you're not in relationships, if you're not intentional about maintaining and encouraging relationships, your life is going to be the lesser for it. Jesus, even in Matthew 18, said, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Just as in the Old Testament, the Bible says, where there's unity, God's blessing dwells. Jesus says, where there's unity uh, among you, my disciples, I will be there granting also my blessing. Now, there's a Greek word for this blessing. There's a Greek word for the power of uh, this created uh, nature of God in life, and it's called synergia. We get our word synergy from it. And uh, the definition of synergy is just that the interaction or cooperation of two or more organizations, and I would add also people, the two or more substances or two or more other agents produce a combined effect that is greater than the sum of their separate parts. It's a multiplying truth. It's not only biblically true, and it is, it's taught from the very beginning of all scripture, it's also objectively verifiable. And, and you've experienced this in your life. I've experienced it in my life. Uh, and, and I hope that when you experience it, you just, you, you place it in your mind and you remember and say, I need to do more of this. Because this leads to joy, this leads to satisfaction, and this leads to accomplishment. When I was a kid, we used to swim in quarries. In, in fact, uh, I still remember the movie Breaking Away which was filmed the same year that my youngest son was born in 1979. I was just a newly minted pastor. Uh, that was some 38 years ago. I took the pastorate at age 10, you know. And, and that movie was about a coming of age. And in fact, I, I, I recall that as I was preparing this message because I want to tell you about that experience and how I come to understand the, the value and the power of friendship. Uh, but uh, I remember that movie because it was about kids growing up in the quarries of Indiana. It was a coming-of-age film. In fact, uh, I saw in my research that uh, of the top 10 most inspirational films, this one still is holding up as number eight. I'm going to have to go watch it again. But it's about these kids who uh, constantly go to the quarries, and this is where they work out their issues of life. And, and that's what we did, too. And, and the quarry that we went to mostly was called Lake Clare. 
Now, Lake Clare was uh, a deep, deep quarry. You could jump right off the rocks, or if there was a tree close enough, you could jump right out of a tree, which we did, and uh, it would be 60, 70 feet deep, and it was all spring-fed. I mean, that water was cold. That water was absolutely cold. In fact, one day, I remember we had been bailing hay for a neighbor, and we couldn't wait. We were just, you know, just sweaty and dirty, if you've ever done that. And uh, my oldest brother uh, dove right off the rocks into the water. And the water was so cold and his body was so warm that it shocked his face and paralyzed his face for like a week and a half, you know, uh, just from the effect of the shock of the cold water. Now, there was a rite of passage in that town where you had to swim across Lake Clare. Now, swimming across that lake was like 300 to 400 yards, and it was uh, about three times that length. And in that cold water, uh, people often cramped up. And, and so we would never do that alone. You'd always have to have guys go with you in inner tubes, you know, in case you punked out or in case you just got too cold or started to cramp. And there were people every year that drowned because of the coldness of that water and because of the cramps that would be affected. You know, it was just really important for the safety And also, I think, for mutual encouragement, because your friends were there, and you just had to do it, and so you did what you could not do on your own and should never do on your own. That was an important lesson in life. And uh, it's also true of of draft horses, although now if you go to the country fairs, they often have tractor poles, you know, and, and they have different classes of tractors. They even have long garden tractors I've seen who've been involved in tractor poles, but back in the day, they used horses. And there is a documented story of a champion horse that was able to pull uh, on the sled 4,500 pounds the required distance. I don't know what it was, you know, 50 yards, whatever it was. And uh, the runner-up horse was able to pull 4,400 yards. But to prove a point, they yoked them together. And you think, well, 45 and 44, was that 89 then? Did they pull 9,000 pounds? You know how much they were able to pull? 12,000 pounds. 33% more. There's just a created truth about the power and effectiveness of mutual affection and encouragement. You know that's true if you've been involved in a workout routine, a study group, even military action or corporate events or, or even medical challenges. People do well when they do them together. In fact, our oldest son was born a premature child, and the doctors made a really strong point, and the nurses as well, that you need to come in here. Even though your son is in an incubator, uh, they do better if the parents interact with their life. It's just a medically true, verifiable experience. As I said, it's not just an addition of resource. It's a multiplying effect, mutual encouragement. Let's look at an example in Jesus' life, and we're going to be looking at uh, John chapter 13, beginning at verse 1, and it's a story that takes place not on Palm Sunday, which is what we're celebrating today, but later in the week, this is considered a holy week, on Thursday, Jesus met with his disciples in an upper room to celebrate the Passover, and uh, he was there with them celebrating this meal, and in the uh, course of the meal, before the meal began, he did something really odd. He got up, girded himself with a towel, laid his outer garment aside, and began to wash their feet. And this is the story of that mutual affection and encouragement. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that the hour had come for him. This is important, you know. He realizes this is the moment 
that this lesson has to be taught. And he was about to leave this world and go to his father. Having loved his own, he knew this was his moment. And because he loved them so much, uh, and they were going to continue in the world, and he was no longer going to be with them, he loved them in this way to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. So that was all in place. Now, Jesus knew, was well aware of what was going on. This, you know, sometimes you get this feeling of poor Jesus. He was trapped in the Garden of Gethsemane, you know. His life was snatched away from him by evil men. Now, this was a purposeful act on Jesus' part. He came for this purpose. In fact, as he entered the city, he said, my soul is very sorrowful. And what should I say? God, save me from this hour? No, for this hour I was born. Intentionally, Jesus knew that the Father had given him power to accomplish the mission, to die for the sins of the whole world, and that he had come from God and that he was going to be returning to God and that time was close. So understanding all of these things and having concern for his disciples who were going to continue in the world, he got up from the meal, took off his outer garment, wrapped a towel around his waist, and he began to do his thing. I want to talk about some steps towards growing mutual encouragement in your life. First of all, God's timing is always right. The right moment had arrived, not only for Jesus, but also for his disciples who were going to continue in his word. There is an old proverb that says, uh, uh, when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. It means that you can't teach anybody anything before they're ready to learn. Uh, His disciples had experienced a lot And they were now prepared with their experience to learn. Maybe that's true for you. You know, maybe you've gone it alone a long time in your life. And and maybe you've been self-sufficient, not only as an individual, but maybe as a family. Maybe you think you just don't need anybody else. And your life isn't as happy as you think it ought to be. You know, you're frustrated and you're stressed. And maybe this is the time, you know. Uh, Maybe this is the time for Jesus to teach this lesson for you. And to help you break through and understand the value of mutual affection in life. Perhaps it's today. It's not always um, evident. Sometimes we think that we can go it alone. Uh, In fact, the scripture says, uh, Paul speaking, I came to you in weakness and fear with much trembling. My message and my preaching were not always in persuasive words because words wouldn't quite do it. But they came in a demonstration of the Spirit's power so that your faith might not rest just purely on my argument. Because we speak a message of wisdom among those who get it, among those whose time is right, a fullness of time. But it's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age, people who deny that they need anybody uh, who are coming to nothing. He goes on to say, you know, if they had understood my purpose and my truth, they would not have crucified the Lord of Lords. And so it's not always evident that you need somebody else. You think that you're doing quite well alone and without others in your life. Let's continue with the next section. I'm going to read it in three sections. So after he understood the moment and realized the importance of teaching his disciples the value of mutual affection because he was leaving them, after that, Jesus poured water into a basin and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now he comes to Simon Peter, 
a guy like I was just describing who was self-sufficient, strong, and, and wanted to prove to the Lord that he was his equal, that, you know, together they could accomplish the purpose. You know, he could bring something to the table, and Jesus could as well. And he said to him, Lord, you're not going to wash my feet, basically is what he meant. Jesus said, I know, Peter, you don't realize what I'm doing now. I know that you're proud. I know that you feel yourself sufficient. But later you will come to understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. You know, I'm not going to accept servanthood from you. I'm not going to accept mutual affection from you. You know, we are equals. Jesus answered, Peter, unless I wash you, you have no part in me. Unless you allow me in your life. Then Lord Simon Peter said, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus said, Peter, Peter, I'm not talking about just washing. I'm talking about accepting mutual affection in your life. I'm talking about accepting other people's help. I'm talking about accepting the Savior that you need in your life. Those who have a bath need only to wash their feet. Your whole body is clean. Step two, humility is required. You must admit your need for help. And if you've not admitted that you have a need for a savior, that there are things beyond your ability, that your uh, attempts to uh, overcome your own weaknesses, your own sinful behavior, uh, your failed nature, unless you're willing to admit that and receive Jesus, you're going to continue down that path of frustration. We all need Christ Jesus in our life. We need not just his wisdom. We need not just his example. We need the assurance that we are forgiven. We need the fresh start that comes by grace through faith and what he came to accomplish, you know, our forgiveness. And then his empowering spirit. We need him in our life. But not only do we need him, we need each other. We need mutual encouragement. But that too requires humility. You have to be willing to say, you know, I can't do everything alone. God has spread his gifts. Uh, He's spread character. He's spread personality. He's made us different and divergent. And what you bring to the table is different than what I bring to the table. And together, we can be all that God wants us to do. It will keep us from being ineffective and unproductive in our knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. We need him in our life. Now, I talked about this as a biblical uh, term, which is, which is called synergy uh, or synergia uh, in the Bible. It's not just tolerating differences. It's not saying, well, you have your way and I have my way and, and I don't care. Go, go on with what you want to do. That's not synergy. It's not working independently and saying, well, you do your thing and I'll do my thing. It's not fighting for your point of view as though your point of view is right and their point of view is wrong. And it's not compromise which seems to you know, be what everybody wants for Washington, you know, that you give up your point of view, I give up a little bit of my point of view, and we settle for something lesser than we could be. Synergy is not that. Synergy is celebrating and appreciating differences in life, differences of gender, differences of experience, differences of personality, uh, differences of age, and realizing that together we are more than we are apart. It's teamwork. It's, it's acknowledging that I need you and you need me. It's open-mindedness. It's being willing to listen to somebody that at first you say, man, I don't see the value of your point of view at all, but go ahead and explain it to me. It's expecting new and better things are going to come out of this experience. You know, creative meetings are like that where you just throw a lot of stuff out there and it's amazing how it twists and turns and, and, and comes to fruition in our own uh, work here in the ministry. I love this definition of synergy. 
It's the process that reveals the third alternative. It's not your alternative. It's not their alternative. It's when you come together, something happens. Something that neither one of you anticipated. It's not winning. It's accomplishing something that God has designed to be accomplished through mutual affection. Let's read the last section of this scripture, and I'm going to jump down to from 9 to verse 12. Uh, we're not going to get into the Judas betrayal thing that we, we all know about. I, I don't think that's the point of this major teaching. When Jesus had finished washing their feet, he went back to his place, he put on his robe, and he said, you do not understand what I have done for you, he asked them. You call me teacher and Lord, and rightfully so, for that is what I am. Now that your Lord and teacher has washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. For I have set for you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, and you clearly understand that I'm your master. Nor is the messenger greater than the one who sent him. I'm sending you. You're the one being sent. Now that you know these things, and this is key, now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do these things. The third point in understanding uh, the value of mutual affection is to uh, understand the value of example. The best teacher wants always what is best for the student They exist for no other reason. The teacher's example is meant to be followed. Our life is best when we help others through our example and when we allow their example to be helpful in our life. Look back on um, the best teachers that you ever had. Were they about themselves? You know, did they, did they have a reputation? Did they get a lot of recognition from the world, be it salary or status? Did their name and picture often appear in the social pages of the paper? No. The best teachers typically live and die in obscurity because it's never about them. It's about others. And this is what God would have us understand about mutual affection, that it should never be about us getting what we need, but it is in giving that we receive. You know, it's a truth taught in the Bible. It's a truth taught in this idea too. In mutual affection, when you give it away, you also receive it. Uh, the Bible says, and, and uh, it's an important teaching from Philippians chapter 2. It's found elsewhere, Romans 12, other places. Do nothing out of selfish ambition. It's not about you. It's not about getting the right recognition or vain conceit. You know, people accomplish things that way, but it's not satisfying for them. Even if they get their way, it's a frustration normally that results in a, in a loneliness. You're left with your trophy. You're left with your award. You're left with your bonus, but that won't keep you warm. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interest, as Jesus did not look to his own interest. He received nothing from going to the cross for us except our salvation. But each of you, to the interest of the other, in your relationship with one another, have the mindset that Jesus displayed. That mindset of laying it down for the benefit of others. 
This is the importance of the example he set for his disciples. If I, who am your Savior and Lord, have done this, should you not do this also for others? And then out of this teaching comes one last, but I think most significant step of all. You know, it's not only the Philadelphia, it's not only the philia love, the, the brotherly encouragement, but it's also the agape love. It, he says, add to your faith, you know, mutual affection and love. Uh, agape is different than philia. Agape is, is totally a sacrificial uh, kind of love. Let's, let's just review the, the steps. First, God's timing is already right. Maybe God is trying to break through to you now. You're frustrated with your life. You need others in your life. You need to be involved in relationships. It's even important that you be in uh, small groups and Bible study and, and in worship. The Bible says, forsake not the assembling together as is the habit of some, but come together for the spiritual uplifting and encouragement of each other. You can live stream for sure, but uh, you can't always live stream. You need to also uh, interact with people. Step two, humility is required. I have to admit that I have need and and be willing to receive it. Step three, uh, the teacher's example is meant to be followed. He says, this is how I've demonstrated my love towards you. You ought to demonstrate your love towards each other. And then this final step, knowing isn't enough. It's a powerful last verse. Now that you know these things, you will be blessed if you do these things. The Christian faith is not about theology apart from action. It's not about truth apart from behavior. You can't just declare truth to your friends or to your family and think you've done your part. No, he says you should do it in such a way that you demonstrate knowledge, intimacy with God, knowledge and intimacy for them. You know, perseverance, self-control, mutual affection, and love. I, I wrote uh, uh, this phrase that comes from a country western song that I think has a lot of truth in it, that God is great, beer is good, and people are crazy. You know, you, you, you don't behave towards others because they're worthy of your behavior. Jesus didn't behave towards you because you were worthy of his sacrifice, because he was worthy, you're worthy of all that he did uh, to bring us back to God. He didn't even do it because it would forever change our life. He did it because of who he was. You know, if there is one thing that I could teach a young pastor or that I could teach a a growing, mature Christian, it would be agape. It would be this understanding of your behavior should be controlled by who you are and what you know God has done for you. Now, Pastor Dion referred to this last week, and and, uh, I could refer to it all the more because I have more experience in doing this, that being a pastor, you are often, you know, the, the lightning rod for a lot of feelings and emotion. And, uh, and as you lead change and as you try to move the ministry towards what you believe God wants us to do, sometimes you're at the brunt of a lot of criticism. And uh, we have received that over the years. And, and I, I recall one time there was a guy in the, in the lobby and I was just out there greeting people, welcoming them to church. And he said, well, I'm glad I have you to myself because there's a few things I want to tell you. And his wife was in the back going, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. <laughs> I just thought, it's okay. You know, I wish I had learned earlier in my life. And I wish that you could learn that your behavior towards others should not be impacted by their behavior towards you.
There's a phrase that occurs in the Old Testament. I've referred to it before. I love it so much because it says, for his own namesake. It just says, because of who God is, this is the way he behaves. You know, don't give anybody else power over you by, you know, their hatred of you so that, so that you hate them back or so that you give them as good as they give you. That's not how a life should be marked. It should be marked by the way God loved you. There's a scripture that says, Jesus died while we were yet sinners. It's hard to believe that somebody would even die for a good person. But Jesus died for you when you were not a good person. When you were a crazy person, Jesus died for you. And that's what he wants our life to be marked with as well. To know that regardless of how people feel about me, I'm God's child. I'm somebody and I matter. And I I don't take my ego or, or my sense of value from the way people respond to me, but from what God has done for me in Christ Jesus. To have my life marked with that kind of peace and to say, you know, it's okay. You know, your experience has made you caustic. Uh, uh, This situation is making you act out. I get that. It doesn't bother me. I can still love you. And and that guy frustrated him a lot because people are used to fighting with pastors. And and, uh, when churches get embroiled in fights, people love that. They get together and they get on the phone and, and they try to organize power plays. And it always takes two to fight. And if we're unwilling to fight, that's confusing for people. It's confusing in your relationships as well. You know, if you continue to return love for irritation and aggravation. But it's a confusion that will bring attention to the fact that you are different. Because you are God's child. And that's a powerful witness when your life is marked that way. Our lives should be marked by goodness, knowledge, self-control, perseverance, godliness, mutual affection, that, that synergy... And that kind of love that doesn't depend on result, that doesn't depend on somebody's worthiness, but just because of what God has done for me and the child that I am. These qualities, and this is something we all want, to be kept from being ineffective and unproductive in life. And it makes a difference for others. It makes a difference for you. It gives you peace. I I can tell you I know pastors who have fought churches their entire life and when they reach the point where I'm at where they're thinking about retiring or stepping aside I know pastors who've even been leaders of our denomination who no longer worship because they're bitter and I think what happened to you you know it's it's not about winning it's about reflecting the love of Christ that he's shown for you for the sake of others for your own sake so you don't become bitter and for the love of God for the respect and appreciation of all that God has done for you May your life be marked by these things. Amen.